Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Port Richards podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, ADST. For more, check out our website at adst.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All. Have you ever wondered how the Foreign Service learns foreign languages? The State Department has a sort of school for American diplomats, the Foreign Service Institute. These courses are designed according to the difficulty of the language. For instance, diplomats learn Spanish in Arlington, Virginia in just 24 weeks. But to learn Japanese, diplomats are sent to a field school in Japan and attend classes for 44 weeks. But who designs these courses? You will now get to hear from Raymond Chambers, a Detroit native who went on to serve in World War II, then began his career in civil service. He worked as deputy director of the Haiti Binational Center from 1955 to 1957, then worked for FSI as director of the Nice and Paris Foreign Language Institutes from 1957 to 1962. From 1962 to 1966, he worked as director of the Beirut Language School. And finally, from 1966 to 67, he worked as the dean of FSI in Washington, D.C. Let's listen in to Chambers' interview with Harry Rinston. I was one of those guys who felt that he had to do what everybody else did. Uh, it was expected of you, Paul. Yeah. Um, so I studied economics. At first, I majored in math. Uh-huh. I got a major in math and decided I didn't want to be a math major. Uh-huh. So then I shifted over to economics because there were all sorts of friends in my family yeah. were in banking yeah. and stocks and so forth. And I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So I got a major in that. Uh-huh. And then I got another major in French, which I loved. Mm-hmm. And that took me more than just four years. It took four and a half years. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I started my master's and the Second World War came along. 1954. That's when, that's when I took my exam. No, you're talking about the Foreign Service exam. The foreign Service exam. And uh, I went for, down for the interview. USIS got a hold of me and said, you know, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you coming to help us in the mm-hmm. National Center program? I said, okay, mm-hmm. why not? I'm, I'm, I've had enough. Mm-hmm. And I went to Haiti as a deputy director. The National Center was probably one of the best institutions that USIA ever invented. Mm-hmm. What it is, what they did was they, the PAO got a hold of three Public Haitian... Affairs officer. Yeah, three Haitian businessmen and three American businessmen mm-hmm. in any community mm-hmm. and got them to say, we want to form a binational center. That means then there would be, um, they would provide, he would guarantee that they, the USIA would provide uh, directors and English language instructor, mm-hmm. a senior English language instructor, director of courses and so forth to make this thing run. So we were to be grantees. And I was very well received, in fact, in fact very well received by the, Haitian, the Haitians themselves mm-hmm. because it wasn't long after we got there that our landlord came to me and to my wife and said, would you be willing, to my wife, would you be willing to tutor the president's uh, brother's children in English? And she said, yeah. So three times a week, she would go up to um, Arsene's house, that's his name, his name is Arsene. She went to his house and toured the kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got to know everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody in Haiti who was of any, any account. Mm-hmm. The result was that within about two weeks after this started, even before that, when we, two weeks after we got on, uh, on post practically, we were invited to our land, future landlord's home to uh, a party. Mm-hmm. And we, he sent a car for us. We pulled up to the gate, 
there was music and people, and we were the only two non-Haitians there. Mm -hmm. The president was there. Mm -hmm. All of the cabinet was there. Everybody was mm -hmm. there. And our landlord was godfather to the, the president's kids and vice versa. The national mm -hmm. band was playing. And we were welcomed. And there wasn't a single party that took place mm -hmm. afterwards where we were not invited. And the embassy was not mm -hmm. getting the invitations. Mm -hmm. And they were mad. Uh, a lady from FSI who came down because they were we were enjoined, or that is, the, the FSI was enjoined, to start and develop language training programs mm -hmm. throughout the world mm -hmm. to standardize profit language training at post mm -hmm. and get these programs going. So she came down, a linguist, mm -hmm. and she got the language training program in Haitian, Creole, and French going. Mm -hmm. And I was, they, they said, well, you know, you're, you're interested in linguistics and acoustic phonetics, mm -hmm. and they put us together and see how, how can you help her. Mm -hmm. I said, be glad to help, and I even set the program up so it could operate at the embassy or at the information at the uh, biannual center. And she said, what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what I'm doing here is I'm working for the biannual mm -hmm. center program. I'll probably go to another country when this is finished. She said, don't do it. We need you. Mm -hmm. And so she went back to Washington. The next thing I knew, mm -hmm. they had, they, they had, she said, we've got three positions now. We're going to have 10 more next year. Nobody to film. Mm -hmm. And this was that big push, you know, oh, yes. after the Westernization yeah. of the yeah. Foreign Service. Because we'd, we'd always started the Nice Language School, we'd started the German Language School, and the Mexico City Language School, in addition mm -hmm. to the Hard Language Schools. Mm -hmm. And so she said, come on with us. And so I called, I did it by, I did it by telephone. Mm -hmm. I got, I got, in those days you could do a lot. Oh, yeah, yes. And so I called up, and they said, I said, no, I can't hold you down. I can't, I can't uh, tune you down to this, because I understand how these work. But if I leave one job because they're offering me stuff in South America, mm -hmm. what's going to happen if you guys don't pick me up? Yeah. Can you give me a non? Yeah. Can we have a non-conversation? Yeah. And they did. And they said, "Yeah, you come here and we'll work it out." So when my tour was over, I resigned. Mm -hmm. That was like in November. In January, I started with us with mm -hmm. the U.S. with FSI. Well, were you feeling the pressure around this time? The book. The Ugly American came, yes, it came out, out in the 50s. Uh, which was uh, 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 sort of dragged the attention of the American that public was part of it. Uh, to, to the fact that uh, many of their diplomats weren't speaking the f other languages and when they claimed that the Soviet diplomats were running around playing the nose flute and uh, speaking these esoteric languages. I mean, looking at it, it in retrospect, much of that was nonsense, but I yes. mean, that was the picture that was being painted. But no, that was part of what I think provoked or promoted this analysis of where we were with foreign languages. Mm -hmm. And we were, we were bad. Well, we, we, you know, we said, almost like the Brits, we said, if you don't speak, a, speak English, we're not talking to you. Mm -hmm. But that changed in the 50s. And that's part of what it was, was all about, was to, to get rid of the image of the ugly American. And people have an officer say, hey, I can speak to them in their language, and the host country was very receptive to that. Eisenhower said, you know, do, take a study of the foreign service and see what has to be done. Part of that study was, uh, there are civil servants in the, foreign ser in, in the department who are performing as desk officers, mm -hmm. who have never served overseas. They have no idea what it is mm -hmm. to be a foreign service officer. I recommend, I Riston, that this foreign service, and this group of people become foreign service officers mm -hmm. and serve overseas. So when that was passed, bing bong, overnight, we doubled the size of the foreign service yeah. practically. Mm -hmm. And we also then brought down the percentage of competence in the language 
and we were speaking, to a very low level. My job was to reestablish that. Where did you go with the FSI? I went to France. I was the first one. Mm -hmm. I had been a student in France before, you know, and so I, I, was, I had, had my choice. I preferred Western Europe, mm -hmm. and they said, take it. And I had a wonderful, wonderful charter letter mm -hmm. sent to Ambassador Houghton in Paris, which in essence read, Mr. Chambers has an enormous responsibility, mm -hmm. and we aren't sure exactly what he has to do to accomplish this responsibility, but please give him all the support you can to do what he has to do in such a mm -hmm. way as he has to do it. Yeah. I mean, it was a marvelous open letter. Oh, absolutely. Unlimited funds. Yeah. I mean, really, mm -hmm. I never had to request money at all. What we were trying to do was do th two things. Standardize the teaching and standardize mm -hmm. and, and raise the level of competence of those who were mm -hmm. studying. Mm -hmm. That meant training teachers, mm -hmm. teaching people to administer the programs, and making sure that the uh, programs uh, that they were tested in the programs or when they came back to the States were mm -hmm. tested. So the major concern was to be sure that everything was operating in accordance with FSI desires as far as teaching mm -hmm. procedures are mm -hmm. concerned, and that's what I did. Students were assigned from embassies in Europe primarily, some from North Africa, to come for 12 weeks. The students would study between four and six hours a night, and we were extremely successful with that. What was the sort of the state of the art of training languages? We were it? using the audiolingual method, which mm -hmm. had been come out of the uh, Second World War. Mm -hmm. Both the that was the ASTP Army Language School, mm -hmm. the language system, if you wish, uh, which they developed, and which then the linguists there was no such thing as linguists really until after the war. They evolved mm -hmm. during the war, mm -hmm. and uh, at least as far as practicing mm -hmm. linguists is concerned. And FSI got a hold of several of them and built the staff accordingly. Mm -hmm. We had a really, we had a really good staff, mm -hmm. and developed uh, the audiolingual method for training in language. Now, what that means is, we didn't teach them about the language; we taught them the language. Mm -hmm. We didn't teach them what the grammar was, per se, or what they were supposed mm -hmm. to say. We taught them to speak as people speak and not as they're supposed to speak. Mm -hmm. And they learned the grammar. Mm -hmm. But they learned the grammar not before they learned to speak. Mm -hmm. They learned it by having learned how to say things, mm -hmm. and then the grammar was extracted from mm -hmm. what they had mm -hmm. learned to say. Mm -hmm. Now, that didn't happen overnight, mm -hmm. um, from 46 to 58, for instance. Yeah. It was in evolution, and it was, it was rough. Uh, there were some things, there were, some people were just memorizing sentences, and they couldn't didn't feel they could say anything because nobody was there to help them draw the paradigm of what they really had learned. Yeah. Yeah. By yeah. 1958, we were drawing the paradigm mm -hmm. for them because we made, said we made the assumption that they're going to draw it themselves, and they're not. They're not. Uh -huh. You see? So yeah. by 58, we were in a position, 57, 58, we were in a position to say, we'll draw the paradigm for you. Mm -hmm. You're educated, you're intelligent, we'll draw it for you so you can see that what we're teaching you, the dialogues we're teaching you, and the mm -hmm. substitution drills we're teaching mm -hmm. you are helping you learn how to conjugate this verb. Yeah. And so that's what was happening. And by that time, it had become an established. Mm -hmm. But it was over a period of time. Well, you, how long did you keep this? I did that for five years. Uh -huh. I did that in Nice and in Paris for five years. Uh -huh. And then I was transferred to Beirut. The job in Beirut was a little different. I was not an Arabist at that time. I had to learn Arabic. Mm -hmm. But the job was essentially the same. It was managerial, administrative, both, mm -hmm. and linguistic. I had two other linguists who were specialists in Arabic there. And the, po the school had some real administrative problems. I won't get into that, but that's why I was sent. Well, 
Where, where are some of the problems? Uh, it was not structured well to take It was a two-year course. Mm -hmm. And these guys were there six hours a day, wow. five days a week, studying Arabic. And nobody was taking into consideration they were burning out. Mm -hmm. And one of my jobs was to see what could be done about that. Are there any problems teaching Arabic? Is there differences between that and teaching, say, French? Yes. Because they're building guarantees of illiteracy as far as the written language is mm -hmm. concerned. The, the language doesn't lend itself to uh, easy learning as far as writing mm -hmm. is concerned because there, aren't, there are no vowels written. Mm -hmm. And if you start to speak Arab, a formal type of Arabic, you've got to know not only what the vowels are of the language in the middle of the word, but at the end or in the prefix. Mm -hmm. And you only know that by context. Mm -hmm. And so teaching people to speak Arabic, colloquial Arabic is easy, really easy. Mm -hmm. I could learn that, mm -hmm. and I did. But modern standard, the spoken form of modern standard, is much more difficult. There was, a lot, there was nothing for the guys to tie it to. They had no, there were no cognates to speak of. And it was very difficult, too, as they were in a foreign environment. Yeah. So while it was effective as a training device to be in a foreign environment, it was very hard. Um, we produced, I mean, you know him, Hugh Horan. Mm -hmm. Well, Hugh Horan is one of my, his daughter and our, Son were born on the same day in the same hospital in Beirut. Nancy and my wife were good mm -hmm. friends. Uh, Hugh Rain, Norman Anderson. Uh, we produced uh, a whole series of mm -hmm. very fine linguists, all at the four level. But Hugh must be four in two or three yeah. different types of Arabic. Yeah. Remarkable. Now, I don't, I don't claim credit for that. Mm -hmm. I claim to have uh, helped. Mm -hmm. But Hugh, you could, he, he would learn Arabic in a dark room with no book, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And he, was, he knew Quranic. He knew dialectical Arabic, he knew modern standard, and he was just an outstanding Arabist. Um, Norman Anderson, they, mm -hmm. people would answer him in English because he's so fair. Mm -hmm. But his Arabic was four. Mm -hmm. his, his wife, Bonnie, is a four plus, at mm -hmm. least, in written language as well as spoken language. And me, all of you, I, had, I graduated 30 people in the four years that I was in Beirut, but every other one graduated from uh, in those four years from, mm -hmm. from me had became either a consul general, a DCM, or an ambassador. Mm -hmm. When you left there in, that would be about? March of 66. 66, and then what? I came back here, and I was made uh, essentially what? Associate Dean of the School of Language Studies. I didn't call it that at the mm -hmm. time, but that's what the position is today. And I was responsible for Washington instruction. So I, that I, I really enjoyed that. And that's the story. Okay. Well, I want to thank you very much. That was Raymond E. Chambers speaking on teaching the Foreign Service to speak foreign languages. Thank you for listening. ADST is an independent, nonprofit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. ADST's oral history collection, beginning in 1986, contains over 2,500 oral histories, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and absurd events that have helped shape foreign policy. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make a tax-deductible donation to allow ADST to continue its work at www.adst.org.